Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Uh, have there on your notes the title for tonight's um, message is Faith Acts. Or you might want to write in the front of the word faith, true faith, genuine faith acts. Uh, people of genuine faith in Christ are people that act, that, that do something uh, for the glory of God. They do something when there's something that needs to be addressed. People of true faith act, and that is exemplified in the life of Abram, who later becomes Abraham. So I'm going to try to call him Abram all the way throughout our uh, uh, talk tonight because that's what he's called in chapter 14. And then when his name changes to Abraham, I'll try to call him Abraham consistently. But if you look there in your notes, people of faith should act boldly for the glory of God. People of faith should act boldly for the glory of God in deep dependence upon the power of God. People of faith should act boldly for the glory of God in deep dependence upon the power of God. That's a one-sentence summary of what I believe the lessons are in chapter 14. People of faith should act boldly for the glory of God in deep dependence upon the power of God. So let me just ask you a few questions. How do you deal with challenges? How do you deal with problems? How do you deal with a crisis? How do you deal with situations that demand solutions? Uh, Are you a person that acts? Are you a person that seeks to address things for the glory of God? Or do you just live your life with a spiritual passivity? Some people respond to problems or crisis or challenges with a woe is me attitude. And some people address issues with a somebody else Uh, mentality, you know, somebody else will take care of this, somebody else will deal with it, somebody else will address it. And a lot of folks are just sitting on the sidelines, not engaging the challenges of this life for the glory of God because they think somebody else will uh, do it. And they hope it will just go away, the challenge will go away. In churches, as we look at the decay of our society and say, Uh, woe is me, or somebody else would deal with it, our society just continues to deteriorate. Eventually, somebody's got to say, true believers in Christ have to say, we will act for the glory of God, right? Sitting on the sidelines, wringing our hands with concern at what's happening in our culture is not going to help anything, right? We've got to act. We've got to do something. And so we see this, again, lived out in the life of of Abraham. So in, what I want to, 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 to encourage you to do is this. When confronted with a crisis or problem, you will act. You will act for the glory of God. So see this in uh, Abram's life, Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Now just kind of to remind you of the context, in chapter 12 of this book, the Lord appears to Abram with a plan to redeem the world, a plan to provide salvation for the world. And this plan centered on some promises that God made to Abram. He said, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, this was a big promise because Abram and Sarah didn't have any sons. So how could they be a great nation with many descendants if they had no offsprings? So when God said, I'm going to make you a great nation, he's saying, I'm going to give you uh, and Sarah a son. I'm going to give you many descendants. That was the first promise. And he told Abram, I'm also going to give you 
land. I'm going to give you a place uh, in which this nation, this new nation I'm building, will uh, reside. It will be their land. It will be a promised land. And he said, when your descendants uh, uh, grow and when your when your family enlarges and your family becomes the nation of Israel, those that curse this nation will be cursed. Those that bless this nation will be blessed. In other words, God's saying, your descendants will be my chosen people. And I will bless them with my protection and bless them with my presence. And he also said to Abram, through your descendants, through this nation I'm building, through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that promise to Abram was fulfilled when God one day, through the Jewish people, sent a Messiah. His name is Jesus. And Jesus came to this earth. And Jesus came to take away, John the Baptist said, the sins of the... What? The sins of the world. He came to die for the sins of the world. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, he died for the sins of the world and made available salvation to anyone from any tribe, any tongue, any nation, any ethnicity, anyone that placed their faith in him can be blessed with eternal life, blessed with forgiveness, blessed with a relationship with God. And so through Abraham's descendants, all the families of the earth have blessing available if they will just trust Christ. Now, all of that's found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Pretty awesome, right? So God makes the uh, promises to Abram and then begins to uh, enact those promises in Abram's life. And as God was uh, unfolding his, his plan in Abram's life, Abram had to walk by faith. He had to take God at his word. He had to believe God. Then he had to act accordingly. He had to line up his life with what God had said. That's what living by faith is, by the way. Living by faith is taking God at his word and directing your life accordingly. And Abram is an example of doing that. And so Abram is an example of living a life of faith. If you want to live a life of faith, then you need to learn from Abram's example. And in this chapter, chapter 14, we're going to see that faith, genuine faith, true faith, strong faith, if you will, acts when confronted with something that needs to be addressed. So, look, look with me. Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. I'm about to wow you with my pronunciation skills. You ready? In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, I love, I love this one, Chederleomer, it's really Kederleomer, but Kederleomer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Amim in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. They turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against how many? 
Five. So let me just sum up all that I just read. Well, all the big names. Four kings versus five. That's what's happening here. Okay, there's a war between four kings and five kings. Okay, a lot of big names in there, but that's summary statement. Four kings against five. And it says, Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Now, he said, Wait, what in the world is happening here? Uh, just to kind of sum it up for you, four kings from the eastern uh, part of this area join forces to put down an uprising by five kings, which were city-states in the plains of the Jordan. Uh, these, these five kings who were conquered by four kings uh, allied together and said, we're tired of paying tribute to the four kings. We're going to stop paying tribute. They've been, they've been uh, lording over us now for 12 years, and we're not going a 13th year. We're going to stop paying tribute. And when they stopped paying tribute, the four kings said, we'll show them. And so the four kings from the east, probably modern-day Iraq and and modern-day Turkey, began to march into the Jordan River Valley, the Jordan River area, down by the Dead Sea is where these five kings were located, and they uh, engaged in conflict and dealt these five kings a, a heavy blow and defeated them in battle. You say, wait, what's the problem? Well, the problem gets personal for Abram in the next verse. Look what it says in verse 12. They also took who? Lot, the son of Abram's brother, Abram's nephew, who was dwelling in Sodom, we'll talk some more about that later, dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So this, this conflict between... Five, uh, four kings from the east and five kings gathered around the Dead Sea in the Jordan Valley became personal for Abram because in the midst of the conflict, as they conquered Sodom and conquered that area, they took Lot who was living there and his family into captivity with them. So uh, what's Abram going to do? A war has ensued. Abram is taken captive. How is Abram going to respond? Is he going to sit on the sidelines and wring his hands and say, oh, this is terrible? Is he going to hope against hope that maybe someone else will go after these four kings to get back Lot and his family? What is Abram going to do? Well, look what it says in the next verse. Verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, of them, and he went in, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. So what does Abram do? He gets his uh, servants together, who evidently were trained in war, and he goes to uh, get Lot and his family back. In other words, Abram uh, acts uh, in true faith, genuine faith, faith in the Lord, acts for the glory of God. So let me just give you four aspects of how people of faith respond to crisis or what it looks like when people of faith act in the midst of a crisis or in the midst of something that needs to be addressed. First of all, people of faith act with caring. With caring. It says there in verse 13 that one escaped from these five or four kings 
And he comes and tells Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Enir, allies of Abram, he tells them that these four kings had dealt with five kings a decisive blow, and he tells them that in the midst of it all, your nephew Lot and his household, your family, their possessions have been taken. They have been taken into captivity. And so we see in the next verse, verse 14, Abram acts quickly. Abram's prompt response was driven by his love for his relative. We see uh, in chapter 13 when there was conflict between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen because they had so many livestock that Abram defers to his nephew, even though Abram had the uh, the, the position and the prominence and the preeminence to make the decision where Lot would live and where he would live. He defers to Lot. He cares for Lot. He, he wants to bless Lot. He wants to encourage Lot. And so he has this compassion and caring that spurs him on to action, which is a reminder to us, and this is in your notes, that true faith, listen, this is important, true faith cares about others. Cares about others. One of the the marks of of genuine faith, one of the characteristics of a strong, vibrant, growing faith is that your faith leads you to care for others in their predicaments. And you want to help people that are in predicaments. Abram wanted to spring into action because he cared for Lot. And true faith cares about others. So one uh, one of the... Essential ways that you can that you can evaluate your spiritual life is this: Am I growing in my compassion and concern for others? How do I feel when I hear about billions of people that have never heard the name of Jesus? How do I feel about that? How do I feel about the plights of orphans. How do I feel about millions of, of, of young ladies being sold into trafficking in our world? You know, there's still estimated 28 million slaves in our world. 28 million. How do I, does that concern me? Does it prick my heart? How do, how do I feel about people that are in dire straits and need some help and need someone to act on their behalf? One of the ways you can discern where you are spiritually is, do I see my heart enlarging for others? Do I see a growing concern in my life for others? You see, true faith cares about others and great compassion for others leads to urgent action. If you really care, you will do something, right? Not just wring your hands and say, this is terrible, or not just somebody else will get to it, but what can I do? How can I address the situation? How can my faith lead me to do something for the glory of God? People of faith act with caring, and great compassion leads to urgent action. And I think one of the reasons that that Christians in our culture struggle with urgent actions because we've lost our compassion for others. We've lost our care for others. And we've got to recapture that because that's a mark of growing faith in Christ. How do you feel about others? So people of faith act with with caring. Uh, I love the story of 
George Mueller. Um, he uh, lived in the 18th century in England, and he looked around and he saw the the growing numbers of orphans in that nation, and he wanted to do something. So he began orphanages and and prayed for God's provision and prayed for God's uh, uh, protection and prayed for God's guidance in it all. And he was able to to minister to hundreds of children because he acted. He wanted to do something to address this, and he he did it for the glory of God. As a matter of fact, Thomas Mueller said, or George Mueller said, Thomas Mueller was the German soccer player that uh, had a re- really good World Cup. But yeah, uh, how many watch the World Cup? Anyone watch the World Cup in here? Shame on you. It's the most popular game in the world. You've got to do better than that. All right. Some of you are saying, what is the World Cup? Okay. <laughs> what was I talking about? George Mueller. And George Mueller, he even said in some of his writings, he said, I want to begin a ministry to orphans that is built upon prayer to show people that Prayer and trust in God is sufficient. In other words, he acted, and he acted in such a way that, that people would see God's glory in the way God met their needs. Isn't that awesome? Not only did he act, but he acted in a way that God would get glory. More about that in a little bit. So, people of, of great compassion are characterized by urgent action. People of faith act with caring. Number two, people of faith act with courage. People of faith act with courage. Look what it says in verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men. There doesn't seem to be any delay here. It just He gets up and goes. He, he, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Uh, now, here's what's interesting to me about this story. There's no indication in the Bible that Abraham had any sort of military training. It seems that these 318 um, servants had grown up in his household, had, were hardened and tough, and had been prepared to protect. You know, in that day and time, you had to be ready for uh, uh, raiders and, and, uh, and, and, and danger. Um, but it, there's no indication that Abram was trained in any, any kind of military way. Uh, we know that he's a shepherd. We know that he's a... Uh, rancher, we know he's a merchant, but never are we told that he's a soldier, and yet he still takes action, which is a reminder that people of faith, and in this case, it's talking to us in this room, Christians should do the right thing, listen, even if the odds are against them. This isn't General Abram here, okay? This is Shepherd Abram. This is Nomadic Abram. This is uh, Merchant Abram, and all of a sudden, he's going to war, uh, the odds don't look good. He's going against some hardened nations led by ungodly pagan kings, and he is going with, a, with, a, with an urgency. And so if we learn that faith acts, we learn from Abram that Christians should do the right thing even if the odds are against them. Christians should do the right things, should address situations that need to be addressed even if it looks difficult, even if it looks... Uh, very, very challenging. You see, doing the right thing when faced with insurmountable obstacles requires great courage. Why do we need courage? Because when you do the right thing, and it's difficult to do the right thing, you need courage to keep on keeping on. 
It's interesting to me that throughout the Bible, and I mentioned this last week as well, throughout the Bible, there are 365 uh, times that we see the command, do not fear. I heard a preacher say one time, that's one for every day of the year. Do not fear. Do not fear. Be of good courage. Second uh, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. We are not to live in fear. And if we're going to address things that need to be addressed, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be challenging. If it wasn't difficult, everyone, everyone would be addressing it, Right? Well, it's going to be easy. Everyone would deal with it. But it's not easy, so no one's dealing with it. So if you're going to deal with it, it's going to take courage. It's going to take bravery for you to address things that need to be addressed. I read this quote from General Omar Bradley, well-known general in World War II. He said, bravery, I like this, is the capacity to perform properly even when scared half to death. (laughs) So even when you know that it's going to be difficult, you still do the right thing. And you put away fear because you're trusting God and you ask God to give you the courage to address things that need to be addressed. People of faith act with caring. People of faith act with courage. Here's the third thing. People of faith act with wisdom. They act with wisdom. Now it gets interesting in verse 15. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Now again, there's no indication that Abraham had any military training, but what he does here is genius. It's as if he's just using some sanctified common sense and saying the best way to uh, defeat these kings and their warriors is to divide our troops to uh, throw them into confusion when we attack. That's what he does. It says he divided his forces, attacks at nighttime, smart, uh, takes away the advantage of them being able to see what was happening. It levels the playing field, if you will, and they uh, attack and he defeats them. Doesn't give us many details concerning the battle other than they... One. And so we see here Abram not just being courageous and not just being urgent and not just taking action, but he's, he's doing things with some wisdom. He's, he's applying wisdom to this situation. Wisdom is doing the right thing in the right way. Wisdom is doing the right thing in the right way. The book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. And all throughout the book... The book of Proverbs is encouraging us to do the right thing in the right way. That's what wisdom is all about. It's the right application of biblical knowledge, the right application of a biblical worldview to the situations that we face in our lives. Wisdom is doing the right thing in the right way. And you and I, when we act, we should act in concert with the wisdom that God supplies. That's so important. It's in your notes. When we act... We should act in concert with the wisdom that God supplies. Question. This is not rhetorical. I want you to answer me. How does God supply wisdom? Who wants to jump out there and take a stab at it? How does God give us wisdom? Well, His word, right? I mean, the Bible is, is His word. is truth with no mixture of error. And it gives us uh, principles and truth and commands and warnings and promises uh, and examples. 
so that we can uh, apply that truth to everyday life and make decisions that honor him and avoid decisions that dishonor him and get us in all sorts of trouble. So yeah, the word of God um, is, is critical. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm convinced that you cannot live a consistently wise life if you don't take the Bible seriously. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. You have, you will, if, you, if you don't engage the Bible seriously uh, daily, if you don't take the Bible seriously, eventually you'll start living a worldly life. It's just how it works. Because your mind's not being renewed. How else do we get wisdom from God? A prayer. Oh, you remember what he says in James chapter 1, verse 5? He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. That's simple. So if you ever find yourself in need of wisdom, what should you do? Ask. Ask. We all are involved every week in things that are too big for us to handle in our own, in our own wisdom. Do you know that? I mean, think about the callings in your life. I think about the callings in my life. You know, I'm called uh, to be a... A, a follower of Jesus, okay? I'm called to be a godly husband for Claire. I'm called to be a father that brings my children in the, up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'm called to be a pastor of a local church. And I think about those callings, and I think, man, that's, that's some big, important stuff. And I'm just not up to the task in my own wisdom. Not going to happen. I need God's help. You ever come to that place in your life? I need God's help. And so wisdom is just a prayer away. I I just read recently, again, the story of Solomon. You know, the Lord appears to Solomon when Solomon takes over the kingdom from his father, David. And the Lord says, Solomon, ask me for whatever you want to ask me for. And Solomon says, this is a great people you've given me to lead, and I need discernment to know how to lead them well. And God's so honored that Solomon would ask for wisdom, and he gives him a bunch of other stuff too. He said, I'm going to give you wisdom, I'm going to give you riches, I'm going to give you a, a, a growing kingdom. I'm going to bless you and bless you and bless you because God is thrilled by the fact that Solomon sees his need for wisdom and he asks. So you get wisdom from the word of God. You get wisdom from the simple act of prayer. God, give me wisdom. I've got to be a dad today. I've got to be a I've got to be a husband today. I've got, to, I've got to be a pastor today. Lord, give me wisdom to know how to address the different situations that are going to come my way today. God, give me wisdom. When's the, when's the last time, don't answer out loud, when's the last time you asked specifically for God's wisdom? People of faith act with wisdom. How's another way, or what's another way that we get wisdom in our life? The word of God, prayer, what else? What's that? Others, okay, others. The Bible says in Proverbs that the person that walks with wise people will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So one of the best ways to grow in wisdom is to be around wise people, right? People that share a biblical worldview, people that believe the Bible is truth and seek to apply the truth of God's word to to all areas of life. And if you if you limit your exposure to people that build their lives upon the rock and they're just building their lives on sinking sand, their lack of wisdom will rub off on you. That's why it says the companion of fools will suffer what? Harm, right? Harm. So you've got to be around other people. Somebody else, what did, Ms. Linda, what did you say over here? 
Well, wise counsel, yeah, same. Wise counsel. And so those are some ways that we, uh, that we grow in wisdom in our everyday life. And Abram acts, but he acts with great wisdom. So we should all act in concert with the wisdom that God supplies. So when you address a situation that needs to be addressed, when you step uh, toward a challenge instead of running away from a challenge, when instead of somebody else handling it, you handle it, be a person that is dependent upon God's wisdom to address it rightly. Here's the fourth thing we learn from Abram. People of faith act with caring. People of faith act with courage. People of faith act with wisdom. And then fourth, people of faith act with God's power. God's power. It says in verse 16, he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, lot with his possessions, the women and the people. And it says in verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Notice here, Melchizedek says, Blessed be God Most High, who has given you the victory. He's the one that delivered your enemies into your hands. So why did Abram win? Why? Why? God helped him, right? God gave him the victory. He won this victory in God's power. We should should never want to take a step in life if God's not going to take that step with us. We are desperate and dependent for God's power. And, and it's evident here to Melchizedek, evident from us just reading this narrative, that God had his hand on Abram's life. There's no question God empowered Abram for the things that he accomplished through Abram. Now, when God has his hand on someone, there are some things that uh, are true of that situation. So let me just give you three aspects of what it looks like when God has his hand on someone. Number one, when God has his hand on someone, people take notice. People take notice. Look what it says in verse 19. Or back, back up to verse uh, 17. He returned, he, after his return from the defeat of Ketolaomer, kings were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, so a king from Sodom who represents the world because the, 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 nation, the, the city of Sodom was an ungodly city. God's going to destroy it very soon. So we can, we can assume that that this king of Sodom was not a was not a a, a godly man. All right, he comes out to uh, to congratulate Abram, and then Melchizedek comes out. Now, who is Melchizedek? He's a really mysterious figure. He's mentioned over in Psalm one ten. He's mentioned over in Hebrews uh, several times, and it says there he's the king of Salem, which was the uh, the name of uh, for Jerusalem, all right, king of Salem. Uh, the word Salem there, shalom, is peace. So it, it, it literally is he's the king of peace. He brought out bread and wine. He was also not just a king. He was priest of God most high. So Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Now, there are two views, and I, we don't have time to go real deep into this, but there are two views concerning who Melchizedek is okay this mysterious figure that comes out and speaks to Abram. 
The first view is that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. That before Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, before he left heaven and came and took on human flesh, there are times, because he, he, he's existed, existed for all of eternity, right? He didn't begin to exist when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He just simply left heaven and came to earth and took on humanity. So he, he existed before he came to earth. And so some people believe that this is Christ appearing in a pre-incarnate form in the, 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 the form of a priest-king named Melchizedek. That's one uh, prevailing view. Another view is that Melchizedek was, was a real person, uh, a human person, that was a king of peace, king of Salem. He was a priest, a high priest for the one true God, uh, but he was a type or a picture of the priest-king who was to come, i.e., Jesus Christ. In other words, he is a, he's, he's, a, he's a, a foreshadowing, if you will, of Jesus Christ. And there are some, some characteristics, such as being a king and a priest, that Jesus Christ had as a, as a king and a priest. Now, I tend to go with the second view. I believe that Melchizedek was a human, just like you and I are, are fully human. I don't believe he was divine. I don't believe this is pre-incarnate Christ. I believe he was a picture, a foreshadowing, a type of Christ. But he's a really interesting figure. And he comes out to Abram, and he says there, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. When God has his hand on someone, people take notice. The king of Salem, a worldly man, took notice. And the, the, king, uh, the king of uh, Sodom, a worldly man, took notice. And the king of Salem, Melchizedek, he took notice as well. A godly man. When God has his hand on someone, people take notice. In other words, when God takes somebody ordinary and he does something extraordinary, you know it's God doing it, right? It's like the old saying, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know it had some help getting there, right? And if something supernatural is done through you, if something extraordinary is done through you, someone had to help you, right? God had to help you. And when God helps you and God uh, infuses you with his power and his wisdom to accomplish great things for his glory, people take note. They see that. They see God's hand on your life. People take notice. And ultimately, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. People take notice. Secondly, when God has his hand on someone, it should produce worship. When we experience God's presence and power and wisdom in our life, when we experience God helping us and God using us and God blessing us and God providing for us and God protecting us, how should we respond? We respond with worship. Look what Abram does when he meets here Melchizedek, the the priest king from Salem. In verse 20, the end of that verse, it says, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. What is Abram doing here? Abram is tithing. Abram is tithing. He's giving a tenth of uh, the, the blessings that God had given him as a, a recognition of God's, of God's goodness to him. Warren Wearsby says, When we tithe, we acknowledge that God owns everything and that we are grateful stewards of his wealth. And so Abram's saying by his tithe, 
God gave me this, I'm a steward, God has been good, and in recognition of that, not because God needs this stuff, but because God calls me to prioritize my life, in recognition of God's goodness, I'm going to give, I'm going to give a tithe uh, as an act of worship. Abram worshiped the Lord through giving. Just kind of a quick insight. Uh, I, I believe uh, that, that tithing is a standard that Christians ought to uh, practice. It's 10% of, of what God gives us to be stewards of. We give back to Him to recognize that it all comes from God's hand, to recognize that God has been good to us, and to allow us to participate in God's work uh, locally and around the world. So I believe tithing is important. And, and you know, there, there's an ongoing debate about tithing versus grace giving. And I've heard people say before, well, listen, uh, tithing, that's the law. That's the law, and, and you know, we're not under the law anymore. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. Uh, you know, we don't, we, don't, we don't do some of the things the law called the, the Jews to do in the sacrificial system. Well, notice, this is pre-law. This is before God gave the law to um, Abram, I mean, to, to Moses uh, and to the people of Israel. This is pre-law, and we see them tithing. Jacob, a little bit later, he tithes, and then God incorporates tithing into the uh, law. So I believe tithing is a, 10% tithing is a, is a common thread all throughout the Bible which is a good standard for us to, to live by as believers in Christ. For example, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I think it's chapter 9, chapter 8, chapter 9, I think it's chapter 9, uh, it says that he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So question, how do you know if you're sowing sparingly or bountifully? I believe to know whether you're given a little or a lot or not enough or too much or whatever or whatever. The way you know that is by having a standard, right? And the only standard that I see throughout the Bible for giving is that 10% tithe. That's the standard I see. And so I believe that is that standard there. So we can look at the tithe and say, am I sowing sparingly, giving less, or am I sowing bountifully? Am I even giving more than the 10%? So that's just something uh, for you to consider. We see in Abram's life a man of faith. He experiences the great blessing of God, and it's just, it's just second nature for him to give a, a tenth of everything that he has in recognition of God's goodness on his life. Uh, and here's what I've discovered about giving. When it comes to tithing, when it comes to giving over and above tithing and you know, special offerings and things like that, I've learned, and you'll find this to be true as well, that I've never found myself missing anything that I've given. Or I've never found myself regretting giving to the Lord's work. Have you? Have you ever, you ever given the Lord's work? I mean, even sacrificially, it hurt a little bit, and you think, I wish I wouldn't have done that. No. No, there's a, there's a blessing when we, when we give and obey God's law and, and, and obey God's standard for giving and, and line ourselves up with what he says about stewardship. There's a blessing in that. God blesses it when we prioritize our finances the way that God wants us to do that. And so it's very important for our spiritual life. It's, it's important so that our, our possessions don't have too great of a hold on us. One of the great ways to lessen the hold of the things of this world is just by giving stuff away. And it just, it, just, it just looses the grip of materialism on your life. And by the way, I can, I can say, talk about tithing tonight and say this. We're in a better 
financial position as a church than we've ever been in the summer, July. If you look in our bulletin, we're ahead of budget in the middle of the summer? I don't know if that's ever happened. We're always trying to play catch-up starting in September, October. And this past week, we had a $37,000 offering, something like that, somewhere right around there. It's just incredible the way God is blessing us financially. And that's because people are taking him seriously and saying, I'm going to trust you with my finances. I'm going to give, and I want to even give over and above for your glory and for your work. And so uh, it's fun to preach about tithing when the finances are good, you know. You've all been there when, when things are tight and then you've got to do a tithing sermon and that's no fun, all right? So, uh, so it's, it's fun to talk about tithing when things are good and just to say, praise the Lord for his provision, amen? And to recognize his hand of blessing and to recognize that, that, that tithing and giving is critical for our Christian life and it's good. It's an act of worship. So when God has his hand on someone's life, it should produce worship. We should recognize that and respond accordingly. And then third... When God has his hand on someone or something or a church, he should get all of the glory. He should get all of the glory. Look what it says in verse 21. I guess really interesting. There's an interesting twist here in the plot. Back to Sodom, I believe, who was a pagan, ungodly king. He says to Abram, Give me the persons that you captured back from the four kings. Give them back to me because they're residents of Sodom. But, he says... Take the goods for yourself. So as a reward, Abram, for your valor, your your decisive action, as a reward, I'm going to give you all the spoils of war. You can have them. What does Abram say? Well, thanks, king. Have a good day. Look how Abram responds. This is so, so impressive to me. Abram said to the king of Sodom, verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. I love that. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskal, and Mamre take their share. What, what is he saying? Abram doesn't want there to be any misunderstanding. He doesn't want somebody to ride by one day and see all of these spoils of war and think, well, King of Sodom gave him all that. King of Sodom blessed him. That's why he's so well off, because the King of Sodom rewarded him for his actions. He didn't want anyone thinking that he was blessed because of the King of Sodom. He wanted everyone to understand, listen, that he was blessed because of the king of kings. And so in this really impressive gesture, Abraham says, I don't want any of your stuff. And interesting, he says there, I don't want to take a a thread or sandal strap. In modern day terms, Abraham says, I don't even want a shoestring. I don't even want a shoestring, lest someone should think that I'm well off because the king of Sodom has blessed me. He wanted God to get the glory for all that was happening in this situation, all that was happening in his life. And so when, when God does great things, when God has his hand on an individual or a family or a church and God moves in extraordinary ways through ordinary people, he should be the one getting the glory, right? But here's what happens nowadays in American church culture. 
if uh, a church sees significant growth or significant results, immediately they're approached by a Christian publisher to write a book about it. And tell us the 10 things that you did to get your church to this level or to grow like this. And we want to know all the stuff that you did. And, and then, listen, you can write the book and then you have a big conference and other people can come and, and they can take your 10 things back to where uh, they're serving and they can apply those 10 things and grow their church the same way your church grew. That's happening. It's, it's a booming business in Christian publishing. And to me, in a very subtle way, that could be saying, you know what? Yeah, God's blessed, but really it was these things we did. It was the way we structured our worship service or the way that we did our small groups or our discipleship outreach plan or, or it, was, it was, you know, our, 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 our great campus or it was our, our wonderful this or wonderful that. And, 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 and in a very subtle way, people can begin to take credit for the work of Almighty God, Right? And Abram said, I don't want anybody getting credit. I don't want King of Sodom. I don't, King of Sodom, I don't want you getting credit. I want God to get the credit. I'm not taking anything that would make people think that, that I'm just blessed by the king of Sodom. And so we see here a very magnanimous gesture. Uh, Abram has a desire for God to get all of the glory. So wait, should we desire, should we have a strong desire? Should we be passionate about the glory of God? And let me just say it like this. I was talking to Marvin a little bit earlier about the glory of God. It is the dominant theme of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the overarching theme of the Bible, of this big picture story of redemption, is the glory of God. The Bible is not ultimately about you, even though we're blessed from the redemption that Christ provides. The Bible is ultimately about a God who saves and who is good and powerful and all-knowing and works everything after the counsel of his will. So when the dust settles on human history, everyone will see his glory in all of its perfection, his glory in all of its beauty. There's coming a day, Habakkuk says, when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Everyone will see how great and glorious our God is. That's what the Bible's about. So if that's the, if that's the ultimate dominant theme of Scripture, the glory of God, shouldn't that be the dominant passion of our life? Everything that we do, when we act... When we address situations that need to be addressed, when we meet challenges head on, when we step off of the sidelines into the game, we should have a desire to do it, not for our glory. We should have a desire to do it for His glory. So that people can see just Ordinary folks around you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, they can see an ordinary people being used by an extraordinary God. So when God has his hand on someone, he should get all of the glory. Alan Ross sums up this chapter with these words. Here then is a man of faith and courage, using the help that God had given to him and using wisdom in the confrontation enjoying the victory over the forces that threatened his land and its peaceful anticipation of the divine promise. Abram was a man of faith and courage, using the help that God had given him and the wisdom God had given him to act and to uh, 
uh, enact a great rescue of Lot and his family. 